0: Welcome to The Cool Tools Show. I'm Mark Frauenfelder, Editor-in-Chief of Cool Tools, a website of tool recommendations written by our readers. You can find us at cool-tools.org. I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Kelly, founder of Cool Tools. Hey, Kevin. Hey, it's great to be here. In each episode of The Cool Tools Show, Kevin and I talk to a guest about some of his or her favorite uncommon and uncommonly good tools they think others should know about. Our guest this week is Joe Grand, also known as Kingpin, Joe is a computer engineer, hardware hacker, teacher, daddy, honorary doctor, TV host, member of the legendary hacker group Loft Heavy Industries, and a former technological juvenile delinquent. He's been creating, exploring, and manipulating electronic systems since the 1980s. I've known Joe since the early 1990s or mid-1990s. Joe, great to have you on Cool Tools. (laughs) Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so great to have you here, and we're looking forward to your enthusiastic recommendations.
1: Excellent. <laughs>
0: yeah, totally looking forward to it. And yeah, that we we will we'll have some things to talk about after you talk about the tools. But let's just jump right into it. Tell us about why you like an oscilloscope, which one it is, and, and you know what it, what oscilloscopes are, and, and why people
1: might want one. Sure. So I, I should preface this with uh, you know I've grown up around electronics, and I love tinkering with electronics and building projects, uh, and hacking on things. And the oscilloscope is one of these tools that lets you visually see electrical signals and how they change over time. So it's something that's used from an engineering perspective when you're designing systems and trying to, uh, you know, make sure what you're building is doing the right thing. Uh, It's used for debugging. So you can make sure your, you know, your data is being sent the right way or figure out why it's not being sent the right way. And then when you're hacking on things, uh, or reverse engineering something to basically figure out how something works. So it's an extremely just universal tool. I I, I uh, have made jokes in the past of like you know I'm in love with my oscilloscope, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it really is like my go-to tool for for any type of engineering reverse engineering. It's it's one of the only tools that's actually on my desk near my computer, where more more my other engineering tools are kind of behind me on the workbench. So. You know, the fact that it has a special place on my desk, a special place in my heart. uh, And it's something that, you know, every engineer uh, has used or will eventually use. And and it's just a a great tool. Actually, you you can really see what a system is doing. And it's, you know, if you think about it, it's kind of mind boggling.
0: Okay, Joe, I got to ask you about 15 years ago, you came over and paid a visit (laughs) and you had a, you had a garage door opener, regular garage door opener. You pushed a button. And yep. it opened my garage door. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, what is this, Joe? And and somehow what, what what it did was it just ran through every possible garage door opening code
1: really quickly. Um, hopefully the statute of limitations is done. Yeah, um, no, whatever but, you did. But but that's it, right. That was, <laughs> yeah, that was the universal garage door opener. And it basically, you know, replaced the dip switches, the on-off switches where you would set the transmit password. Um, and the the subsequent, you know, receiver password on, on your receiver. And uh you just I I built some circuitry to replace the dip switches with some electronics that would cycle through all the possible combinations. And if you were using that garage door system, then your garage door will open. And I I, I will say I I have never opened any garage doors that I shouldn't open with it.
0: <laughs> I, I totally know. So did the oscilloscope come in handy when you
1: designed this universal garage door opener? Yeah, so so I actually built that when I was Fifteen or sixteen, I think, and I did not have access to an oscilloscope at the time, um, but it would have been uh, very handy if I wanted to figure out say how the uh, data was structured or maybe if I had some sort of antenna and I could uh, you know demodulate the data and look at it on my oscilloscope so it would have been handy uh in in that case of hacking that project since I was just replacing the dip switches with some some circuitry uh I luckily didn't need to understand really how the transmit circuitry worked though mm-hmm. so it actually would have been handy though for me to verify that i was cycling through all the possibilities properly like to make sure my digital circuitry was working properly where what i did is i just used a series of leds that would turn on and off to show that it was counting through all of the possibilities uh but that that so that was sort of my debugging mode because I didn't have access to an oscilloscope.
2: Okay. So so, so um, do you have an oscilloscope that you would recommend, particularly for, say, beginners um, like myself or um, for advanced users as kind of the very best? What, what are your oscilloscope recommendations?
1: Sure, so there's definitely a huge range um, of oscilloscopes, just like there are a huge range of you know competency and, and skill levels for hacking and for engineering. Um, from an entry level, I would recommend uh, like Regal is a company that makes a lot of good kind of entry to mid-level oscilloscopes. What would it be a price for a beginning oscilloscope mm. that you might, um, expect? That's a good question. Um, I haven't bought an oscilloscope in a long time. I would say probably in the couple hundred dollar range, we'll get you something decent. Uh, and then cool. you can you know, go up to hundreds of thousands, depending on how you know, fancy you want to get.
2: For the couple hundred dollars as an entry one, what would you, what would you kind of expect or, uh, and then what are you not getting, um, that a more expensive one might have?
1: So uh, oscilloscopes have sort of the core functionality is kind of the bandwidth. So how much the range of, of signals can it capture, uh, the speed of the signals that it can capture, the number of channels that you have, uh, the number of sort of additional functionality as far as like decoding some of the data. So really for the entry level ones, I mean, they're they're quite capable these days. I think you could get, you know, four channels, meaning you can measure four signals at a time. Um, probably if you get something with like a 250 or 500 megahertz um, bandwidth, that's going to let you capture a lot of signals that you see on embedded systems and on electronic systems these days. You could go higher if you're dealing with more complex systems. But, you know, for the, for the most part, if you're working on, say, building some electronics or debugging how some, some system is communicating, those generally are using lower speed serial communication methods and stuff. So you could get away with a, with a slower one. Um, it all comes down to features. It's kind of like buying a car, right? You could like make your own uh, with an engine and some wheels. And you could make your own oscilloscope too if you wanted to. Um, and then you're, you're just adding features. And as you add features, as you increase speed and capability, then the price just shoots way up.
2: Okay, and so uh, do you have a particular one that you want to recommend right now?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm a huge fan of um, Agilent, which actually is now Keysight, um, which formerly I believe was HP. So it's this, you know, basically same company, different name. Uh, I have an Agilent, uh MSO seventy fifty four B, which is now discontinued, uh, and I've had it for probably about twelve years. Um, but the cool thing is that because it's been around for so long and it's, it's very robust uh, is people have figured out how to actually hack it and enable all sorts of other features that are that exist in the firmware that didn't you know that wouldn't normally exist unless you paid extra money to enable those modules uh, so now you know my discontinued oscilloscope now has features uh, that I didn't used to have and that was just a matter of connecting to the scope over the network and changing basically one bit. In memory to enable all these other features, so it's kind of brought it a little more up to date. And, and you know, I've never had a situation where I haven't been able to use this particular scope. And so, you're saying that these are um, discontinued.
2: Does that mean that you basically need to buy used ones?
1: Yeah, you could. You could get a lot of a, a lot of test equipment. Um, you know, a lot of engineering test equipment is available on the surplus market or through like uh, test electronics resellers. Um, so yeah, you can buy old equipment. How much would uh, one one of these units go for? Probably still a couple thousand dollars, I would say. But you know, the beauty of all this test equipment is it's very repairable. Uh, so if you go to like an electronics flea market, for example, which I used to go to a lot of them when I lived in the Bay Area, um, you could buy you know old HP equipment from the from the '60s, '70s, '80s. Uh, fix them up, calibrate them, and you're good to go. So a lot of this stuff, it's not like, you know, modern technology where you kind of use it and throw it away. Like these things are built to last. They're built to be repairable. Um, so if you, you know, if you have the skill to fix it, then you can get an older one and, and maybe a, a higher end one uh, for a cheaper price and hack on it and get it, get it going again.
0: Joe, you know one thing I've seen just like trolling around on AliExpress is that you can get oscilloscopes for like, or less, they have like 2.4 inch LED screens and they just have one channel. But would you think, do you think that like for someone who's just like playing around with an Arduino or basic circuitry and want to see like how a five, five, five timer circuit they made is working is something like that. Like,
1: okay. Or do you think you should get a real one that costs it? Sure. I mean, again, it comes down to kind of what you're expecting to do. Uh, mm-hmm. I, haven't, I haven't looked at those low-end ones, but I'm assuming it's going to be pretty slow. And it probably is just like an analog to digital converter and then throwing that you know, signal up on an LCD, which yeah. is fine for like super low-end if you want to see your LED blink or something slow. Um, I'm sort of a snob in that area, though. Like you know, I would <laughs> rather, I'd rather invest in a good tool right away. And kind of mess around mm-hmm. with tools that are, you know, going to be hit or miss. Okay. So, so
2: several times you've mentioned slow or speed. I'm not really sure what what that uh, means with an oscilloscope when it's to sure. say that it's slow. So, so what w- what is the slow or where is the slowness and why is that a problem?
1: Right. So different electronic systems communicate in different ways. And you can think about, you know, if you've ever used a modem, which I know that Kevin and Mark have, um, but <laughs> other viewers, maybe not, uh, you know, data was transmitted In in a slow method, meaning like you know maybe 300 bits a second or 2400 bits a second, and then over time signals got faster and faster. So we see that same sort of thing with electronic systems, where sometimes we're dealing with asynchronous data streams, which the timing of the signal is built into the signal, and sometimes we deal with synchronous data streams, where there's a clock line that basically tells the receiver when to synchronize the data, and that can range from being very slow, say a DC state of nothing to say one hertz or a megahertz. But now we're dealing with, you know, most electronic systems. I mean, it really depends, but you could have something that's running at 16 megahertz, a hundred megahertz, you know, a gigahertz, depending on if you're looking at higher end PCs or, or Raspberry Pi sort of thing. So the range and the speed of signals is kind of that you, that you tend to work with is kind of going to determine how capable and how fast your oscilloscope can capture the signals. You know, I have a 500 megahertz scope that samples at four giga samples per second. Um, and I mean, honestly, I have not dealt with any signals probably faster than like 80 megahertz mm-hmm. looking at stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely better to err on the side of higher and more capable because you don't know, especially in the case of reverse engineering or hacking, you don't really know what types of signals you're going to encounter. Um, so you want to, you know, you want to make sure you're covered. But really, it just comes down to like invest, you know, it's a tool, right? It's a it's a tool that you'll that you'll end up relying on or that I rely on all the time. So it was for me a worthwhile investment to just go for as high end as I could afford at the time uh, and make sure I was covered. And it has just been so useful. I can't even put it into words.
2: And uh, going back then to the kind of the entry level one, if someone wasn't sure exactly whether they needed an oscilloscope, but they wanted to try one out to see if it would help them, and you have you mentioned this rig, riggle, uh, cheap riggle, which is around two hundred eighty dollars, I guess. W- would that um, tend to be able to capture something if you were working on Raspberry Pi, say?
1: yeah I mean again it depends on it depends on what signal you're looking at on the Raspberry Pi, but I think even some of the entry level regals you know a lot of a lot of makers in the community and a lot of entry level hardware hackers are using um that brand uh because they're because they're lower cost uh they are also hackable. People have modified the firmware and updated firmware on some of those as well um so yeah you know it's a it's a great entry level tool and if you end up you know working at a, at an organization maybe that's discarding old test equipment and you can grab an HP or an Agilent or Keysight or uh, Tektronix, you know, go for it.
0: Cool. Well, that sounds great, Joe. And uh, we'll include a photo of your scope. It looks like a super high-end one.
1: Yeah. And, and that one too, the, the image quality isn't great, but this one I was actually demonstrating of you know, one of the things that we do from a reverse engineering perspective When we're analyzing a a, a circuit board, especially if we don't know what it's doing is we'll kind of use the oscilloscope because it's showing us signals in real time and just kind of move the oscilloscope probe around to different signals on the board to see if we can identify any activity or Mm -hmm. any clues about what the system's doing. So that picture is actually me on a, I think that was a Linksys WRT54G, I'm not sure, Um, but I'm probing around looking for activity on on various test points and, and pins of the chip. And I'm actually showing on that, on that scope is, uh, is the UART interface, which is like the, the boot log um, serial output uh, console interface for this particular device, which is running Linux. And, you, and you're
2: saying you can recognize that from the pattern, that the pattern has a very distinctive pattern on the screen.
1: And you say, oh, that's the, um, that's the boot there. Yeah, exactly. So some signals are more identifiable than others. Um, so something like UART, which is a universal asynchronous receiver transmitter, um, like if we use, you know, the old RS-232 port on our computer, uh, that's a very recognizable signal because the, the timing of the signal is built into the signal, meaning the width of, of the, the narrowest width of that signal corresponds to sending one bit. So the signal is very kind of repeatable in, in widths of that minimum width. So we can look at a signal like that and be like, oh, that's you know that must be UART or some asynchronous signal because it's a multiple of the narrowest width, where if we're looking at uh, a synchronous signal, that's going to look not as repeatable because it's really driven and, and kind of um, synchronized to the clock. And in that case, we're, we're going to try to find some associated clock line that's going to look like a square wave, you know, something like a heartbeat, very, very identifiable. So the more you look at stuff on boards, the more you can just get some... Kind of immediate clues about what a system's doing and then dig deeper from there i would
2: imagine again for beginner types like myself that there must be um, a number of youtubers who do tutorials on how to use an oscilloscope are you I, familiar with it? are you
1: familiar with any that you would recommend i'm not familiar with any um videos except i did make one for make magazine a long time ago about using an oscilloscope um back with with brie pettis uh uh, but I'm sure, yeah, I haven't looked. I'm sure there's some great uh, tutorials on how to use an oscilloscope. A friend of mine, Colin O'Flynn, uh, wrote a series of articles for Circuit Seller, which may be online, uh, which is a great electronics magazine. And I think it's like a four-part series on the various uh, you know, features of oscilloscopes, what to look for, depending on what you're working on, and kind of a more detailed version of what we've been talking about. Well, thank you.
0: Yeah, and I think we'll we'll do a we'll put a link up to the the make uh, tutorial that you did with Bree because, like you said, and a scope that was made in the '70s has the same basic functionality. You know, they have triggers and um, all the same kinds of controls as as a sc- modern oscilloscopes. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. So so the next one sounds like a, a very interesting piece of hardware
1: that you use to reverse engineer stuff. Tell us about it. Sure. So my, my second tool is something called the Chip Whisperer. And this is basically a, a set of tools. There's a, a, a variety of different Chip Whisperer devices. Um, but what it does is basically simplify attacks or help you with attacks that have traditionally been very complicated uh, from, a, from a hardware perspective. So things like fault injection and power analysis. Um, into something that's a little more digestible and more accessible for, for you know, what I say, normal hackers. And I'm using air quotes here. <laughs> so basically, you know, uh, uh, some tools designed by hackers, for hackers, for people that need to do complex attacks against uh, electronic systems. And I'm just blown away at, at how awesome this tool is. And it really lets you do some you know, really interesting techniques to not only force hardware to misbehave in a way that you can take advantage of, to say, break security of a system, um, but also kind of passively listen to what a system is doing and, and even get to the point of like recovering encryption keys uh, that it might be leaking unintentionally. Wow. So give me an example of you know a, a job
2: that this tool, you would use for like, um, what would be an example?
1: of? What sure. So actually a, a perfect example, um, is a project I just finished, which, uh, w- required hacking a hardware wallet to extract the recovery seed, uh, for somebody who had forgotten their password. And it, so this, this is, is a crypt- cryptocurrency crypto currency wallet for cryptocurrency. Yeah. And this is becoming a, a pretty major problem. So this particular hardware device, uh, this hardware wallet that was used, um, had a a certain microcontroller in it and that microcontroller had firmware on it that the code of this device um protected so it had some security features on the chip and the chip was preventing hackers or anybody from extracting the user code uh from this device so for part of this attack and I'm being a little bit vague because I haven't publicized what the you know what the vendor is and the attack and and all of this stuff yet um though we did film it and it's going to turn into a pilot or a video of something at some point um So part of this attack was using this chip whisper device to do what's called a a voltage, uh, glitch or a fault fault injection where basically I'm kind of causing a brownout of the chip at a exact point in time to defeat the security mechanism of this chip. And that would enable the debug mode that I could then go and extract memory after that. Um, you know, normally that, that's like a mind blowing sort of mystical thing. And the reason the Chip whisper is so cool is these types of attacks have been known for decades as far as, you know, fault injection, voltage glitching, clock glitching, side channel power analysis, all of these advanced hardware hacking techniques, uh, but they just haven't been easy to do. And that's the main thing is this tool or this tool set um, is the hardware component and a bunch of Python uh, code and API that you can use to write code to control the hardware. And it just simplifies something that, you know, traditionally is just way, way too complicated for most people to get into.
2: So, so um, is there a, a market for, I mean, what, what, what's the market for this? Uh, uh, like, I mean, you could certainly see the black hat folks wanting to use it, but is it um, unless you're kind of, I mean, like,
1: Uh, hundreds of these being sold thousands millions i'm I'm just curious (laughs) what i don't know the amount i don't know the amount but yes it's useful for not only attackers but also for legitimate engineers um and the reason is is kind of if you think about you know any tool can be used offensively or defensively you know there there was a quote that we used to use at the loft which was the hacker group i was involved in back in the in the early mid 90s of like, you know, you could have a hammer and you can use the hammer for something good like building a house or you can use a hammer for something bad like smashing somebody over the head. So tools are like that. Um, The chip whisperer lets you not only from an offensive perspective, uh, you know, break security, hack a device, understand how a device works, but from the engineering side of things, lets you do the same thing. Understand how your own device works so you can protect it better. See if your device or your system is susceptible To these types of attacks so it's really used in the in the legitimate um, i won't say legitimate and illegitimate because you know every industry has its its own legitimacy and illegitimacy Um, but it can be used from the traditional engineering design side to validate your systems and validate your devices and see if they're susceptible because security really comes down to a cat and mouse game and uh you know it's really hard to design secure systems but if you can get yourself in that mindset of the attacker and use the same tools and use the same process that attackers would, then at least you can get yourself to the point of like, all right, I know that I'm not susceptible uh, at this current point in time. So that's probably a good enough you know, place to go. Let, let's release our product. Um, so it is used a lot by, by you know, security professionals, people doing penetration tests and hacking security, possibly malicious folks as well, um, but definitely on that legitimate engineering side. How much does it cost? Um, so th- so that's the cool thing is there's a whole range, uh, starting with the Chip Whisperer Nano, which is I don't know sometimes Colin O'Flynn who who runs this company New AE who designs these sometimes he gives those away for free. Uh, I would say like I don't even have the prices pulled up, but a and handful t- of t- two hundred fifty dollars for the Chip Whisperer Lite. Well, that's for the light, right? So the Nano is a is a lower end version that does not you know doesn't have the speed, it doesn't have all the capabilities, but it's a great entry level tool that's cheaper. I would say it's in like the well, it's fifty dollars here
2: it is it's fifty dollars on the website yeah
1: so fifty so fifty bucks to get set up um then the nano like you said was two hundred and fifty or so, and then the chip Whisperer pro is like a couple thousand um so there's a whole range uh all of the you know all of the 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 python's open source, the designs are open source. I'm not sure about the chip Whisperer pro if all of that is, but there's the varying levels of open sourceness. Uh, And the cool thing is you don't even necessarily need a tool like this to do your fault injection and and side channel analysis. The thing is, just like an oscilloscope, I prefer to go with tools that I know are going to work and do the job so I can kind of focus on what I want to do. You could craft up some tools to do this type of stuff and, you know, with five or 10 bucks, maybe for a a very focused attack. Uh, But I just love, you know, the fact that there's documentation and support. And when I was learning to, to use these tools, it was, you know, invaluable to just go to the forums and see what other people have done and, and ask questions and, and communicate with the actual designers of, of the product. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge fan of it. And, and once you do it, it's crazy. It's like, you know, once you, I guess, going back to the, to the hammer thing, right? It's like, once you hammer, everything looks like a nail or whatever, whatever <laughs> analogy is, same thing. Like once you know how to use these tools, the thrill of like breaking security by, by causing a chip to misbehave is mind-boggling and it never gets old. Um, and the fact that you can monitor power consumption to figure out you know, w- what encryption is, is, when the encryption operation is happening uh, in order to extract the encryption key, say an AAS encryption key from, from a hardware product, like that stuff is is just so cool. And it's what keeps me so excited about hardware hacking because every system is different and even though the result is the same, like you're breaking security or you're doing this, like the feeling of it is just, it's amazing. So yeah, great, great tool to have. And so many resources and, and so much documentation out there that even if you start with a nano, there's plenty you can do, a lot of tutorials online. Um, and you can, you know, just follow, follow through step by step and keep advancing. And then before you know it, you're going to, you know, be a master at fault injection and side channels. <laughs> <laughs>
2: We, we, have, we, we have a couple more of tools you need, still need to cover, so I don't want it to go too long. But I, I, it did sound as if um, people's idea that, um, you know, a wallet, a hardware wallet is unhackable um, for crypto is something that people maybe should get over.
1: Yeah, I mean, nothing's unhackable, right? And actually, if you hear a vendor say that something is unhackable, run away as fast as you can. Uh because like I, like I said, security is the cat and mouse game. Something might be unhackable for the next week or the <laughs> next year, but eventually somebody's going to hack it if they're determined enough and in the case of hardware wallets, you know the the cryptocurrency industry it's it's relatively new anyway, right? It's been what a decade, a little bit more um but hardware wallets, you know people tend to give hardware the benefit of the doubt, and if it looks nice, they say, oh it must it must be secure, but it doesn't aesthetics. Have nothing to do with security, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but people, you know, think hardware is more secure than it is. A lot of these products are actually really well designed, um, but people find security problems with them. And that's just the nature of how it goes. I would say that as time progresses, hardware wallets will be more and more uh, targeted because if there's money on them or say somebody legitimately forgot their password and needs help recovering it, um, which is something that I'm happy to help with, that's, we're going to see that more and more as, as cryptocurrency becomes larger and larger. Um, so it's not to say that hardware is bad. It's just, you have to understand what your risk is. And, and in theory, you know, in reality kind of prevent physical access and, uh, and don't let people get physical access to it. Unless of course, they're trying to help you hack it to get your money back. Right.
0: I mean, that, that's exactly what happened to me with my hard cryptocurrency hardware wallet. I forgot my pin code. I thought I was screwed. And then I was introduced to this 16-year-old kid who lives in the UK who's been hacking these devices and he found a way to upload some exploit firmware so that I could recover my my keys and exactly. give me back give me yeah. access to
1: my coins again. And that was a that was a great a great hack and a great example of sort of the the uh, kind of iterations of things because your version was what from 2017 mm-hmm. and then the vendor patched that problem. And then a new problem will come up or a new vulnerability and you know, things get more secure over time and then somebody finds a problem. And the great thing about the hardware wallet that you were using is the vendor was responsive to that they fixed the problem. Um, But the attack that was done was like a very, very clever um, attack. And you know you're you're able to get your your recovery seat out of it, which was awesome. And I loved watching that video. And it shows you know that that even you know people that are are involved in technology still make mistakes, right? And it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that's where hackers can come in and actually help.
0: And I think the hardware company has now stopped advertising their wallet as being bulletproof. Yeah, just
1: because like you said, there's no such thing as bulletproof hard security. That's right. Really, you want to find companies that are that acknowledge the fact that they could have problems. Um, And accept vulnerability reports and bug reports from people and even publicize those and say, okay, here's the problem somebody found. Here's how we can fix it. uh, Or we're going to fix this in the next version, you know, just to keep customers aware of, of the realities of security. Uh, and then that way, you know, everybody can learn from it and benefit from it. And it makes everybody more secure compared to companies that are just like, oh, we're going to pretend there is no security problem. And then it puts everybody at risk because they don't fix the problem.
2: This is a little bit of a, of a longer rant, rant, but I would say just in general about crypto, that there's many claims made in crypto. And a lot of it is this idea of the faith in the un unencryptability of the math. And um, yes, that's true. The mathematics is um secure but that's not where the weak points are the weak points is where the math actually intersects with the rest of life and those are always those are always places so even though the math they never fail um everything else can fail so exactly um, if, well, you're you know, a, if you're gonna build a civilization around crypto just understand that
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah and there's a you know there's a there's a saying in the in the cryptography world of like um you know the security of of a system shouldn't depend on the secrecy of the algorithm, but on the secrecy of the key. And that's exactly what you're mm. saying. Is like the, the, the cryptography surrounding cryptocurrency is sound unless there's an implementation issue. But the the reality and sort of the security is based on how well do you protect your private keys from other people? Right. Or I like David Chom's refrain, who was one of the earliest
2: crypto and digital cash people. He says, um, you know. Uh, crypto and encryption is a matter of economics. It's like, h- how, how valuable is it? Um, because if you have enough money, um, that determines how safe it is. It's, it's like the more, the more you're trying to secure or the more that's vulnerable and the more expensive, the more money that will be applied to it. And um, you can kind of ba- break anything if
1: you have enough money. Exactly. Yep. So what's your third tool? Okay, so <laughs> this is a little bit of a deviation. I, I wanted to mix it up a little bit and kind yeah, of show great. <laughs> a couple sides of, of my life, not just hacking and electronics. Um, so my third one is formally called the Eat and Eat and Tool. Uh, I just call it a spork um, and it's a, sort of a, a survival tool, if you will. Um, so it's a combination of a spoon and a fork and a bottle opener and a screwdriver and a hex wrench set. And you know probably more, depending on what you what you're able to craft up with it if you need to um and it's something that i that I carry around with me all the time. I travel a lot uh actually, I did you know obviously before uh before the lockdowns um and when I travel, I find myself a lot of times with food that I get you know at at the airport or at a store or whatever, um, but not really a way to gracefully eat that food and uh so this this spork has come in. Really handy all around the world uh, where I don't have to actually eat with my hands. I can, you know, use my little fork and eat and I've used it to fix a zipper um, on my on my sweatshirt and I've used it to uh, to unscrew devices in a hotel room. Uh, So it's just one of you know, it's one of these things that you, you don't know you need it until you until you actually have it. And then it's like, oh, this is amazing. I can use it to feed myself and do all sorts of other things.
2: <laughs> so I can imagine um, we'll unpack your luggage and there'll be two items inside your luggage. There'll be a spork in your oscilloscope. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the spork, it's funny because um, it's so I have a shoulder bag, you know, that I have my computer and all sorts of other, you know, USB cables and the power, str- all sorts of stuff I carry with me. Um, and every time I go through TSA, they pull out the sport and they, they get confused each time and they look at it. They ask me what it is. They, you know, make sure it's not long enough or sharp enough or whatever. But it, without fail, every time I go to the airport over the past, I don't know, since I've had it 10 years or so, I've, I, I, they have pulled it out. And sometimes they're like, oh, fine. And other times people are like, cool, you know, what is it? And then we look up the name <laughs> and they write it down. Uh, but it, it's, worth, it's worth the trouble because it has, it has really saved me, uh, you know, many times. Okay. Super cool. cool. And it's it's actually
0: like from the image I looked at, it didn't look, it looked like it was small, but then when you see it with a human hand, it's not tiny. Like it's a full size spoon attached to it.
1: Well, yeah, the spoon part is full size, but then, you know, the, it's basically like, uh, I don't know, half, or maybe, you don't, you don't know the size of my palm, but it's basically Mm -hmm. the size of my palm. (laughs) Okay. Right. Cause yeah, it doesn't have a long handle. Yeah. Like you wouldn't put it in, you wouldn't put on a keychain in your pocket necessarily, but I just throw it into a pocket in my, in my shoulder bag. Uh, and then it's there to go and it's titanium and I haven't had any, you know, weird stuff growing on it or anything like that. (laughs) Okay. So you have one more, um, tell us about this one. Sure. So this one is sort of a new discovery. Um, where, you know, I, I, I've known for years that, that I should be meditating, um, for a number of reasons that we don't have to discuss on the show, but a lot of people have, have suggested to me over time, like you need to start meditating and it can, you know, help you kind of stay in the present moment and calm your mind and accept what's going on and all of these things. And I've had friends that have this great energy and it's like, how, you know, you're so cool. Like, how do you have such great energy? And they're like, I meditate, um, which, you know, is not the, 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 the cure all for everything. Um, but I've known for a while that I've, I've wanted to get into it. And, um, I finally, uh, started making it part of my daily routine to meditate. And it's something that, that actually has along with a lot of these other tools, like it actually has, has changed my life or kind of redirected, um, my view of life or my view of the world. And, you know, it's a practice, so it's continually changing and I'm continually growing. Um, and one of the things that was, was a problem for me to get into the routine was figuring out how to, how to meditate. Like, what do I do? I I can't sit still, uh, and just, you know, focus on my breathing. Like I needed help. So this tool insight timer is a website and an app that, um, lets you try, you know, a variety of guided meditations and there's classes and there's music and you can kind of experiment and try different types and figure out like what works best. So a lot of A lot of their offerings are free, which is great. That was the other thing is I didn't want to have to sign up for an account and pay money for something if I'm just trying to get into it. So I could basically click through for like a few months and try all of their free options of different guided meditation with different, you know, sometimes people are really into the music side or sometimes people are really into like the affirmations, you know, I am Mm -hmm. enough. I am, I am, uh, i am you know happy or whatever um and then some are are more focused on breathing or or other physical manifestations of things and i didn't know what i liked or didn't like and what worked for me and didn't so i just clicked through everything and and found what worked for me and got into this routine of like every morning waking up and and meditating for you know sometimes it's 5 or 10 minutes sometimes it's 20 minutes which to me is long enough uh, sometimes people can do it for hours depending on you know their their mindset um, but it really has, has helped me form a, a healthy habit around meditation. Uh, and it's, it's one of the only apps I actually keep on my phone, uh, which, which says a lot.
2: And, and uh, it is primarily helping you with the habit of it. Does it, um, it has, I see it says it has some courses, it has some music, so you can kind of choose what works for you and then the app will have anything you need on it as well.
1: Yeah. So, so I, so some of the classes I, I've chosen classes that are sort of interesting to me and they're, you know, multi-day classes. Sometimes they're more lecture, sometimes they're actual meditation. Um, and then you can, you can actually, for the classes, you have to sign up and pay an annual fee, which, you know, is 50 or 60 bucks or something. And for someone like me, who's using it every single day, it's completely worth it. You know, it's an, it's, it's an investment in my mental health. Um, and, and really in my family's mental health as well, cause they have to deal with me and, uh, so yeah, it's really been, it's really been great and it's fun to sort of try different, different techniques and, you know, see what works for yourself. And I have noticed a, a change in my, in my behavior and in my outlook. Um, and you know, there's a lot I still need to work on and learn, but this, this tool has kind of given me that because I, I'm not the type of person that could just go and sit somewhere and do it on my own. So having somebody that feels like they're guiding me through it with their insight, um, you know, is definitely helpful. And that's called Insight Timer. Correct. Great.
0: Cool. So Joe, we're running out of time, but I just wanted to point people out to uh, your website. It's called grandideastudio.com. And you um, uh, are, uh, well, you've been doing them for a while, but hardware hacking courses where you teach people in person how uh, to hardware hack. Are you getting ready to start that up again post
1: pandemic? Yeah. So um, I, I, I typically travel a lot to, to teach these classes. Sometimes it's, you know, they're private classes, so on site for customers. Sometimes they are public classes. And I'm starting to kind of feel that out and see, see you know, travel wise, if, if companies are willing to get back in person. And from a public perspective, it's still kind of hard because those conferences where I would teach classes tend to be very large. Uh, so those haven't started to have in-person training again, but, um, yeah, keep an eye on my website and my Twitter is at Joe grand. Um, my YouTube is, uh, you could probably just search for Joe grand Kingpin empire is the, is the actual YouTube name. Um, but yeah, as things open up again, you know, I love teaching, I love sharing knowledge and things that I've learned with other people and empowering them and um, inspiring other people to go do great things. Um, so as soon as I can get back on the road and start doing that stuff, I'm going to.
2: And if someone has a wallet
1: where they lost their seeds, are, are you open to be contacted about that? Yeah, that great question. I'm definitely open if people, um, have hardware wallets, uh, or software wallets and they, you know, forget their passwords, forget their pins, need help, uh, with that type of thing. Definitely open to helping people out. Uh, so yeah, they can, you know, contact me through grandideastudio.com. There's a contact page and uh, definitely get in touch.
0: Well, great. Sounds great, Joe, thank you so much. Yeah,
1: thank you very much, it was really fantastic. It was great, great talking with you guys, I appreciate being on and hopefully these tools will be helpful to some of the uh, listeners out there. Hey everybody, it's your host Mark and
0: I wanted to thank you for listening to the Cool Tools Show and I also wanted to let you know that we've got a lot more going on at Cool Tools than just this podcast. We also have the Cool Tools website, which has a new tool review every day, and you can get there by going to cool-tools.org. We also have four different newsletters that you can subscribe to, and you can subscribe to those from the Cool Tools page. We have this podcast that you're listening to right now. We also have a YouTube channel where we review tools. Check that YouTube channel out by going to youtube.com slash cool tools. And one of the things I'd like to ask you is if you're really enjoying everything that we are producing Go to our Patreon page and support us there. You can sign up and give us as little as $1 a month, and that would mean a lot to us. The money that we get from Patreon goes towards a lot of things. We transcribe our podcast interviews so that you can read them online. We pay for editing of our podcasts and for our videos. We pay our contributors. We have video production costs. We have equipment costs. We have hosting costs. And the money you give us through Patreon also goes to support Cool Tools Lab. Anything you give is a huge help. And one of the things that we do is if you are a contributor to Patreon, we'll give you a shout out on air. And so I have a few people here to thank this week. Mark Lyanaj, Micah Gates, Monty Zukowski, Patrick James McNally, Robert Cohen, Scott, Spence Lloyd, Steve Avery, Steve Golden, Steve Levine, Tom Hess, William Phillips, Aaron Nipper, Darab Patel, Glenn Mercer, Jay Walker, Jeff Bonair, Ryan Jurrell, Pat Daly, Patrick Kennedy, Troy Wallett, Mike Camarate, Nicole Harkin, Tim Youssef, Scott Reed. Thanks all of you for supporting Cool Tools. And if you would like to have a shout out, go over to the Patreon page and sign up. And thanks for listening to the Cool Tools Podcast. We'll see you next week.